Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Philacrosophy Podcast. I'm so excited to welcome Pat Myers, head coach at Lafayette, to the show. Pat, how's it going, man? Great, James. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you on. I know we're all, uh, you know, got a lot of time on our hands right now with this uh, hiatus from lacrosse, um, but I would like to spend no time talking about that and a lot of time talking about lacrosse and other more interesting, fun things. How about that? Sounds amazing. <laughs> All right. Well, I remember you uh, for the first time when I was coaching at the University of Denver and you were number three at Ohio State. Um, but uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your, your lacrosse background, you know, your times with your brother, Nick, who's the head coach at uh, Ohio State, and, um, and also maybe uh, sort of how you got from uh, Kenny McMain up to uh, OSU. Sure. No, I appreciate it. I, uh, you know, my journey uh, is one that, um, you know, I've been very, very blessed, uh, both with the uh, mentors um, that I've had along the way and, and, and obviously having a brother that um, I've been able to share it with. But yeah, we, uh, we grew up in a small town in, in southern Maine um, and uh, not many people uh, were playing the sport of lacrosse. My stepfather introduced the game to my brother and I when we were young. He was coaching at Cape Elizabeth. Uh, which is just north of Portland, and uh, Nick and I caught the bug pretty quick uh, playing catch in the in the park. Um, ironically, a little quick tidbit for you, and I didn't even make the connection when I took the job at Lafayette. The name of the park is Lafayette Park. Oh, really? Named after Marquis de Lafayette uh, in Kenny Punk, Maine, which is kind of wild. Um, but Nick and I would go over there and play catch, and we caught the bug, and our mom helped uh, run the club program at the high school. We finally became a, a school sport my junior year. At Kenny Bunk, when my stepfather came over to Kenny Bunk and coached me for my last two years, and um, so just growing up in a non-traditional lacrosse area is something I've always carried with me. And watching the game explode across the U.S. something I take a lot of pride in. I'm John Canaris, founder of Oxia Time, a watch company specializing in university-branded watches. Before I fell in love with watches, I fell in love with lacrosse. Maybe you've heard of the Airgate. Well, that was me in goal that day. We may not have won the national championship, but we did win the Ivy League that year and two years before. The first time, we got a ring that we never wore. The second time, we got a watch that while it had great sentimental value, the quality didn't match the significance of our achievements or the memories we created. Ever since then, I've looked for a watch with the design and quality that would live up to my experiences at Penn. After 30 years of looking and not finding what I wanted, I decided to build it myself. At Axia Time, we create Swiss-made automatic watches with stylish designs and quality befitting the universities we represent. Premium watches without the premium price. Check us out at axiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. Uh, certainly in, in getting to know those kids and helping spread the game, but you know, having the opportunity to go out to Ohio State was, was uh, certainly a risk uh, that I took to go to a big school. Uh, travel across the country to the Midwest, didn't know anybody, but was really just attracted to Joe Bresci's uh, enthusiasm and energy uh, and what he wanted to build at Ohio State, uh, starting with the first ever scholarship class there. So his assistant, Jay Stolfert, who you know well, yep. uh, okay. exactly, uh, saw saw me play a peak performance, uh, P200, which was, P200, you, either went to, you either went to P200 or top 205, like, there was no in-between back in those days um, if you wanted to get recruited. And so I was fortunate enough to go out to the Ohio State-Michigan football game and, um, and ended up choosing Ohio State. Uh, it was Ohio State and UMass were kind of the two schools I, I got down to. And I uh, had an incredible experience at Ohio State and helping be a part of kind of a building process there. Um, I think I knew at a pretty early age that I wanted to coach. My parents are all educators and teachers and uh, watching Nick get into coaching was something that you know really excited me and I was fortunate enough to, to jump on as a volunteer at Ohio State after I graduated there and 
um, you know, that was a, an opportunity that Coach Bresci afforded me that I, I'm always grateful for. And, you know, just fell in love with, I was waiting tables at Outback Steakhouse and, you know, working uh, morning practices and uh, kind of piecing it all together. Um, what year were you, what year did you graduate? Oh, three. Oh, three, I thought so. Oh four was the year that uh, we played you guys at Denver in Jesse Owens, and I think uh, you might have called for a stick check on Sean Lyons. I think that that uh, he scored a goal late to tie it. It was an incredible game, back and forth game. Might have been was that an overtime game? I don't remember. It might have been an overtime. Might have been. It might have been. It was a really close game. I mean, that stick had to have been illegal. It was... <laughs> I, I, I plead the fifth. I plead the fifth. But uh, <laughs> was there or was there not a pull string? I don't know. But um... <laughs> I mean, it was like insane. The kid was such a good athlete, and it was like freaking hammering on the stick, and it wasn't coming out. Oh, I just yeah. remember it being a wild game. Jeff Schneider was dominating the X, and it, it was just a lot of good players in that game. Uh, Anthony Gallardi was playing in that game. And yeah. Greg Bice and uh, a lot of guys. So, um, actually, Matt Brownie. Was Brownie? Was he still? Brownie was in that game. Scott, I think Scott Davidson was actually hurt, but he was like our, our All-American committee at the time. Brownie was a, a junior. Um, Corey Van was a senior. Jeff Biggs, Maynard, mm. a senior mm. on that team. Um, 2004 was, you know, like my second recruiting class, but that was also the year that Michael Bresci passed away. Yeah, that was a trying year, obviously. So I jumped on as the volunteer coach and I'll never forget, obviously that, that, um, the, the events that led, that led to, you know, obviously, um, winning the GWL championship and, you know, the inspiration, um, and the heavy hearts that the team uh, played with all year and really played for Michael and, and played for coach. And obviously coach, um, you know, was an incredible, um, just, I mean, nobody knows how to deal with something like that. And um, going through that, um, you know, and watching that team just, uh, you know, come together um, and, and support of coach uh, and doing the best we could to, to try to, um, you know, uh, play the play the game the right way and support each other and and it was uh it was a long year but it, it ended with a GWL championship back in the Great Western Lacrosse League days and um you know from there I was fortunate enough to move on and get a full time job at Cornell uh, with Jeff Tambroni oh yeah they were coming off a great year so it was uh you know an opportunity that opened up and he called me up and I remember driving from Pete Camp which I was working to interview with him and he ended up offering me the job the next day and I. I jumped on it and spent a year there. Uh, we ended up losing to Duke in the quarterfinals that year. Um, you know, they were loaded, uh, Zach Greer and Matt Zash and all those guys. And Was that the um, year Zach Greer scored the goal to the last second? Like they jammed it into him? No, that was actually uh, the following. Okay. That was actually the the year after that. Or maybe it was – it may have been two years after that. Uh, the year after that, I think Cornell lost in the national championship to Syracuse. Um, and then I believe, was it two years later, uh, was the final four loss um, to, to Duke, uh, where there was that massive comeback in the second half. But uh, that year at Cornell was, was a crash course in, 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 you know, coaching, just learning from yeah. Jeff and Ben DeLuca and just a very different way of, of going about, you know, how buttoned up they were and the attention to detail and the tradition of Cornell lacrosse and, um, it was an incredible, incredible year. Uh, really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And um, then from there, I had an opportunity with Coach Fed to move over to Bucknell and, and run the offense over there. And he, he was a guy that gave me just an incredible amount of freedom to recruit and run the offense. And I learned from just, you know, kind of the, the mad scientist uh, that, that Frank is in terms of the way he slid, which was different than anything I had seen. And uh, the way he 10-man rode and just the way he schemed and looked at the game was very different. So I went from Coach Bresci to Coach Tambroni to Coach Federaca, who all three are just amazing men and amazing people and all looked at the game differently, um, taught it differently, and looked at player development differently. And um, that was a, an amazing uh, kind of uh, transition for me. And I was very fortunate when Nick, my brother, got the job at Ohio State to be able to go back to or go down to North Carolina and, and reunite with with Coach Bresci in uh, two, that fall of 2008. 
uh, spent six years at Carolina um, before moving up to UPenn uh, and hooking up with Mike Murphy is another incredible coach and again has a different way of looking at the game and um, loves to play midfielders that can play at both ends of the field and uh, very into the small-sided games that you and I were talking about before um, and is an incredible mentor to me still to this day so um, before moving over to be, be the head coach at Lafayette. So the journey um, has been one where I've had some really incredible head coaches. Um, the coaching journey started with that year at Ohio State uh, through trying times and, um, you know, uh, you know, being around just an amazing family with the, with the Bresci family and, and then being able to kind of move on from there to a couple different places and learn the game through a different lens and hopefully be able to kind of take all those things and, um, meld them together into into my own style and my own thoughts as a head coach as I move over here to Lafayette. Before we dive into Lafayette, and we're going to take a deep dive, can you just give us um, a kind of uh, description of these mentors and these head coaches that you worked for, kind of what you took from them? Um, people are just so interested in hearing, you know, what it is that kind of makes these guys successful and whether it's their leadership or the combination of that and the kind of the, like you referenced, you know, Fed is like a mad scientist and he slides differently. I mean, any tidbits on that stuff would be so interesting to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think they're, they're all, you know, high character, high integrity individuals, first and foremost. Coach Bresci, his leadership is, you know, starts with positivity and energy and uh, belief and confidence in his players. Um, and that was something as a player that I always appreciated, um, you know, built up an incredible amount of trust and, um, let his, you know, let his, uh, you know, listen to his leadership, listen to his players, um, but also, you know, was able to to hold you accountable at the same time. But I think just his infectious personality and yeah, his energy sure. and positivity is just something that everybody is drawn to. He's a magnet um, in that way and a guy that you just, you know, you love to play for and, and you love to be around. What um, about the way uh, he junks it up on defense? I mean, there was yeah. like unbelievable experimentation going on in the early 2000s and late 90s by Coach Bresci. No doubt. I mean, I think when we were building that program, we were playing a schedule similar to what we've been doing at Lafayette now in terms of playing. And one of the reasons I went to Ohio State, I tell people, was because I, I wanted to have the opportunity to make an impact and play. And uh, we were playing Duke and Carolina and Virginia. And so he was breaking out the 42 and the 51 and the double shot, the single shot, and then a zone with a shot behind it. And, all those sorts of things and we had to junk it up. So um, by the time I was a junior and senior, there was a lot less of that going on. Sure. Um, but we were in a six, five game with Maryland my senior year in the NCAA playoffs. And we played three different types of zone defense and um, you know, moving the shorties around and that type of thing. So credit coach was just doing what he had to do to kind of build the program and, you know, make us a competitive division one lacrosse program. But he was certainly experimenting, no doubt about it. Yeah, we all kind of were back then. And then yeah. what about Cambo? So, so um, you know, you said it was a big cra a crash course and being buttoned up in different things. Um, you know, Jeff is still as buttoned up as a coach as you're probably going to find. Uh, but what were some of the things that stuck out that you learned? Yeah, well, I think it was, um, you know, Co Coach Bresci was certainly like a father to me and, and a, a father role model in that regard. And when I got to Cornell and my first full-time job, you know, the way that, uh, you know, obviously Coach, Coach Tambroni inherited that program from uh, Coach Petromala, and that was sort of a rebuild as well. Um, and the way that he approaches his day-to-day uh, -day, um, and he's unwavering and just his core philosophy and his belief and confidence in um, how he goes about building culture um, and, you know, practice planning, uh, player development, um, just building relationships with the guys off the field, uh, alumni. I mean, he had a plan for everything. And that was what really kind of blew me away just in terms of, you know, this is what it's going to take to build a championship level program without, you know, um, missing any detail. And I think that when I stepped by, I was like, wow, I, I just, I have so much to, to soak in here and learn. And then watching the way he coached offense, which back then he had Sean Greenhall and Joe Belucas and some really talented players and watching the detail and the um, kind of scheme um, that, that he, that he really implemented 
and the way he built that up in uh, day-to-day skill development was something that really was eye-catching to me and um, was just a, an experience of a lifetime for me to be able to go into the Ivy League, see how they handled not practicing as much as I was used to, and get these kids to such a high level in such a short period of time while also saying, hey, look at leadership. We're going to lean on you to do X, Y, and Z uh, and empower the kids at the same time was something that was I'd never seen before. Yeah. You know, and, and he went into the Ivy League at a time when Princeton had been dominating the entire country, not just the Ivy League. And, uh, and he, he dominated the Ivy League while he was there, which is some people don't really realize that. What an experience to be able to uh, have coached for him. So you moved on to a full-time gig, I guess, or a first assistant job at, with, uh, with Frank Federaca at Bucknell. Um, I've always been fascinated with, with what Frank does with his, like you said, the 10 man rides and the way his slide and recover defenses and the fact that he always seems to shoot a pole out to the ball on the backside every time. I don't, I don't even know how he does all that, but uh, what were some of the things you learned from that? Yeah, I think, you know, he was a guy that looked at the game a little different, you know, do, do more with less and, you know, let's do what we do and do it really well. Let's be a little bit different than everybody else and let's do what we do and do it well. And for him, that was the early sliding defense that was going to be tough for teams to handle um, that he sort of adopted from, from Coach Tierney. Um, and then the 10-man ride and, you know, the philosophy of we're going to practice 10-man riding, riding every single day. It's the first ride we're going to introduce and we're going to do it every single day. Um, and it was, it was just – it was wild to see – you know, kind of how he thought about, you know, and how he schemed and would break down the other teams clear. I mean, he knew your man down clear. He knew your sideline, low sideline clear. Your, he called it your up clear. If the ball went out of bounds above the box. I mean, that was back in the days of horns and um, no shot clock. So he knew, I mean, every single type of clear and he had a scheme to defend every single one. Um, And we would spend time on every single one. So the way he broke down film was very, um, you know, just, uh, again, the attention to detail was something that was eye-opening for me. I mean, it was uh, every little piece mattered. And so we would sit in his office for hours just watching other teams' clears. And then he would explain to me how we were going to defend a certain team and take away their strength and send them to the middle of the field or take away strong hands and slide, you know, early to their face and pinch the double. And um, and then it, it would work, you know, and uh, I think his goalies would always have a lot of saves because they would see more volume of shots, but they were, the yeah. philosophy was lower angle shots. So those goalies at Bucknell are always in the top in the country in save percentage um, because they're seeing rubber, but they're getting it from places that they can handle it. And um, that was kind of the design of it. And um, he, you know, we beat number one, Maryland that year. Um, we lost to yeah, yeah. California and then we beat Maryland on a Tuesday and he played oh, yeah. basically a zone kind of a hammer type zone against Joe Walters. Um, that really frustrated them. That was back in the Maryland big little where coach Cottle really had that thing humming. Um, and was able to frustrate Walters. And I think we beat him like seven to six or something like that, that uh, on the old turf up in Maryland. And that was just, that was one of those memories where it was like, wow, you know, Frank really, um, you know, schemed it up and, and found a way to beat a much more talented opponent. And so for me, my takeaway was, you know, you can really, um, you know, out scheme somebody if you uh, know your identity and know who you are as a program. And he yeah. was unwavering in that and very brilliant, brilliant lacrosse mind. Brilliant. Remember in uh, 06 on Easter Sunday, Bucknell at Denver? I do. I do. You guys 10 man the heck out of us. That I know day. that game was a total shit show. I mean, like I mean, literally we were like pressing and <laughs> we were in the, we were in a full on pressure mode. Talk you guys had the 10 man going. We had 10 man going. You guys had the 10 man going. I mean, I think each of us had like 30 turnovers. Unbelievable. It was a shot clock game without a shot clock. At it, that was. Point. it was truly. Um, and um, so we already talked about coach Bresh, but you had a, you had a bunch of great years at Carolina went up to Penn you talked a little bit about Coach Murph. Just give us one little tidbit about Coach Murph before we dive deep into uh, Lafayette. Yeah, Coach Murph's one of the smartest guys I've ever been around. I mean, I think his philosophy of being able to, to play with pace and play at both ends of the field is something that I think the shot clock has only, you know, enhanced um, in building confidence in the, in the guys. And, um, you, know, you know, his approach to building culture is, again, no stone unturned um, and has a really simple kind of approach to the game. Uh, but at the same time, you know, wants to uh, make sure that he uh, has his kids playing fast and 
um, getting up and down the field and once spent a lot of time on the transition game and uh, things of that nature. But I think off the field, a guy that um, I learned a lot from just in terms of character and integrity and um, the way he goes about his business, um, the way he manages his staff. Um, and I think that watching what he's done with that program um, and they've had their best years, um, you know, I know under coach Murphy and uh, are headed for even greater things uh, in the future. So um, he's really done an amazing job building that program and uh, to spend three years there back in the Ivy league, again, under those rules where it's, Hey, look, you have less time. You got to be creative. Um, he, he, he really taught me a lot. It's awesome. Well, you were definitely ready to be a head coach. And I know the feeling like uh, I was an assistant for 11 years. You were assistant for what, 15, 16 years. Yeah. Right around there. Something like that. 15, I think. Yep. And uh, you know, it's like you prepare your whole life, you know, but there's, there's no way that you're actually, you know, you can't prepare. You can read all the books and do all the coaching you want. But when you become a head coach, it's a lot like becoming a, a parent for the first time. You just got you're going to be drinking from a fire hose. But tell us about what it's been like, uh, first of all, building your culture. Yeah, it's been amazing. You know, it's just been fun. Um, again, you know, reflecting on all the experiences that I've had, I think when you take over a program like Lafayette that has had a lack of competitive success, you know, it is like building a, a new program or a, a startup program. Uh, so to speak. So you rely back on those Ohio State days um, and, and, and what coach, you know, Murphy even built at Penn and to say, look at, you know, we're going to be the kind of the core tenants of our program. Who do we want to be? What type of people are we, are we, are we, you know, going to recruit to, to come here um, and to be a part of, of building this culture? Um, it, it's just fun to kind of do it within it, you know, uh, certainly an administration that um, is excited about lacrosse and knows that, uh, you know, you're, you're going to start from scratch and build this thing um, into a, a winner on and off the field. So, you know, the cultural component just, it starts with surrounding yourself with great people, as you know, Jamie, and hiring great people and working for great people. And if you can do that, um, I think you're going to be able to attract other great people to be a part of the program um, and then build those relationships and create your culture from there. So for me, it was about building a great staff. And I think, you know, I'm blessed to have two awesome uh, full-time assistance with Scott Bita and Judd Hall. Um, you know, Scott was at Lafayette when I took the job. So he was my first recruit, um, Big Ten Player of the Year at Rutgers. Um, and a guy that, you know, went through a really tough year at Lafayette. Um, but a guy that could help me kind of bridge the gap to, uh, you know, have an understanding of where the program had been to uh, where we were going. Um, and then Judd obviously was at Ohio State with Nick for four years and um, known him for a long time. So to be able to get a, a defensive coordinator at the Division One level, you'd run Colgate's defense for three years and bring him in um, was, was really exciting. Uh, and then, you know, hiring a volunteer, Ian Moore, from there. So building the staff was first and foremost. And then I'm just diving into, okay, what do we need to do here to um, start to create belief, you know, in this program, in a program that hasn't had uh, really any competitive success outside of maybe one or two years. And that started on the recruiting trail. We recruited 24 young men uh, in our first recruiting class. Um, uh, we, you know, we ended the year this year with 23 freshmen. So um, that that's kind of was our approach to the the cultural component in terms of okay we're going to bring in a group of guys that is going to inject this program with not just talent and depth but just fresh energy fresh belief from winning lacrosse programs guys that have played high school lacrosse at places that you know they're used to winning they're competitive um, and over anything else I mean they want to work hard um, and they're good people and that's kind of where it is all started for us culturally in terms of you know, the competition, the hard work, and just flat out being a good person. So as you are building your culture out beyond the recruiting piece, you know, of the staff, beyond the recruiting piece of the players, how do you sort of build this on a day-to-day -day basis? What are some of the things that you guys do that you think, you know, helps, helps create this culture um, that is still in process? Yeah, I think that the one of the things that really helped change my view or I guess, you know, you have these moments where things kind of get clarified for you in your head was we read this book called The Captain's Class. Um, and it's about leadership and the guy studies all the best teams in the history of sports. 
um, and breaks it all down. And it's, it's amazing. And people that you thought might be good leaders don't really qualify based on his criteria. Um, and the, the, the moral of the story is the common thread is leadership. Um, all the, the greatest teams ever had the best leaders um, and then goes into the qualities of what made them great leaders. Um, and so really centering our culture around developing leadership um, and that it doesn't have to be some unicorn that walks into your office. Like we all want this Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant type leader, but yeah. developing leaders and with a servant mentality um, that are going to serve each other. Um, as he talks about in the book, um, you know, that are ready to carry water that are going to operate in the margins um, that are willing to, um, you know, raise the bar for, for everything that you do and hold each other accountable. Um, you know, love each other, build trust, things of that nature, but it starts with leadership and you have to build leadership within your program to build a great culture and to build a championship culture and to build a championship mentality to build that, you know, doesn't matter, get better. Hey, when our feet at the floor, we're going to attack every single day with that neutral mindset you have to have leadership and it starts, it's not just seniors and juniors, it's, it's freshmen and sophomores. And, you know, um, that's what we focus every day on is how can we develop leadership within this program, within that locker room, um, in the community, in the classroom and on the field. Um, and so that's, whether it's the leadership council, um, whether it's individual meetings, um, our player impact, our total impact uh, that we've developed that Coach Beta has been working on, uh, where we have meetings with guys where we're developing their, you know, certainly their physical and their technical and their tactical skills, but their leadership skills. Um, I think Brian Kite says it, says it well. He talks about there's players and there's leaders. Players take responsibility for themselves and leaders take responsibility for everybody else and things that are outside of their control. And um, identifying who those people are and really building them up every single day um, is something that I think is going to make your program um, better. And that's what we've really focused on, Jamie, is that leadership piece um, and understanding that you look at leadership through a different lens and you're not going to just have guys that, okay, now you're a junior, now you're a senior, it's your turn to lead. Um, right. You should know how to do this um, has been, you know, really what we've been focused on um, on a daily basis. So I think being around the guys, spending time with them, building those relationships has obviously been important. Um, and, uh, and we read that book together and, and we uh, continue to have those discussions daily um, about how do we get this program off what we call, you know, the mountain of average um, and, and moving it towards a, a better place. So um, it's, it's really centered around leadership for us right now. So interesting. You know, before we got on the, the podcast here, we were watching videos of uh, pickup games in the street and I've just been studying free play quite a bit. And <clears throat> I know you're interested. We're interested. It's really interesting to talk about. There's a lot of people that hypothesize that the Sandlot was where leaders were born also. Mm. Um, and and, and he, he, whether it's con conflict, you know, no negotiation or picking teams or trying to win the game. And, you know, um, you know, back in the day when you played with your friends, leaders emerged and followers emerged and you got to, you need followers as well as leaders. Right. And yeah. sometimes I, I wanted to ask this question because I know that we were already talking about it, but how do you think structure or a lack thereof can be your friend in leadership development? Yeah, it's an intriguing question. Um, some of our best practices, we've had a couple at Lafayette, are where we sat in stands and we watched our guys practice. Uh, I think our one of our best practices was the day I announced who the captains were. We put two captains on each team, and then they each had their own locker room, and we said, we're going to just hang out on the stands and watch. We had an inter-squad scrimmage with refs, and we just let the guys do their thing. And it was incredible to watch not just their leadership emerge, but watch other guys' leadership emerge where the coaches just weren't involved and we were very hands-off, you know, um, to your point. Um, and sometimes as coaches, and I'm certainly guilty of it, we can stifle leadership by um, the way that we, you know, want control of things, um, as you and I were talking about before. And so I right. think that that's something that if you can step back from that, um, then you're going to see leaders emerge. And I think... Certainly uh, letting them fail on the field is something that, uh, you know, where leadership is born, um, no doubt about it. And um, I'm still certainly haven't mastered this by any means as a coach, still learning how to 
how to relinquish that, um, you know, to a degree and, and still be able to help the guys, you know, build the skill set that they need uh, to be successful on the field uh, within the confines of your system and your culture, while also uh, giving them the freedom to grow as, as people and leaders. So that's the balance we're trying to strike every single right. day. Um, and uh, I think my head in the free play thing is interesting because when you think about it from the leadership perspective, you're absolutely right. Leaders are born in those moments and it goes right along with that tenant of if you, um, if your, your vision is to develop leaders um, and that's how you're going to build a championship culture, then you need to have more of that incorporated into your day to day. Right. And it might be less about developing leaders than, than allowing them to develop. Right. Exactly. It's not about what are you doing to develop them? And it might just be, what are you not doing to, 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 I know that's what I'm saying. And I'm just so fascinated with this whole thing because, you know, as sports have become more organized and more structured, everything is being done for the athletes. And we might question why they don't, you know, talk. Well, because we do all the talking for them. You know, we don't put them in a situation where they just figure Mm -hmm. out how to say pick left switch, you know, and the same thing with, with leadership. I mean, figuring out how to make teams on the playground might take 45 minutes for a bunch of nine-year-olds but that like that's actually important for them to figure out how to do that because the whole goal is how do we get this game going now obviously that's not you know the way you're going to run a college practice but the, the, the point being though is that maybe there are there is a balance and you said that you know and it's finding this balance between letting them figure out conflict resolution and figure things out for themselves while we let it happen. Even though we as coaches know we could, we could correct that and get that game going in two seconds. Maybe that's not the best thing to do. And obviously that's a little kid example uh, we're trying to apply, but I just thought it was an interesting thing. to. Well, I think the Ivy league, I think the Ivy league has provided an example in yeah. some regards, you know, I mean, when you're at, when I was at Penn and you look at it, the captain's practices, we, we the last couple of days as a staff have just been talking about our drill bank and our database and creating almost like a, you know, linking all of our drills. So like, you know, the guys can just click on a drill and they can see it uh, ahead of time or they could use it if they wanted to. Um, Much like you see goes on in the Ivy League when they come back and the captains have to run practices and people wonder how the Ivy League, you know, I mean, their leadership and some of those programs is, is, is at the highest level because it has to be. Yeah. Because those kids are running the show and they have to take ownership. You don't have a choice. Um, It's such a great example. It is. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, you know, we're building a program here at Lafayette. And so I'm guilty of this as well. You know, you want to start in early January and get things going and dive right into your transition game and your old packages and your D packages. And at the end of the day, it's like, you look at what some of these Ivy League programs do and where the kids do are empowered and take some of that ownership on themselves. And it's, uh, there's a lot to take away from that in terms of building leadership. Interesting. All right. Switching gears. What is your uh, philosophy on player development? So, yeah, I I love that. Love that topic. I think it's something that we we certainly want to pride ourselves on. Um, We have created this, uh, actually Scott presented on this at the, at the convention this year, um, total impact. I heard Erica Dombach, the women's soccer coach speak uh, from Penn state. um, And and she talked about, you know, um, having a kind of formalized player development model within her program um, they have a smaller roster. They meet with, she meets with every player once a week. Uh, obviously that's harder to do when you have 45 or 50 guys on your roster, but we've created yeah. this Google drive mentality and we just called it the total impact initiative where we can, um, track, uh, all their physical attributes, all their technical astru- attributes, which is obviously everything that you do with a stick in your hand, uh, would be the technical piece. And then the tactical piece is go to that IQ X and O piece. Um, and I think you want to hit them on all fronts. Um, and then obviously you have the, the off the field stuff, the emotional piece, which is becoming big in terms of strengthening your mind and being, you know, the mindfulness and the sports psychology, um, aspect of it, um, is a big one, the emotional, um, piece. So all of that is, is it are areas that we want to try to, you know, max our guys out and help them grow and be able to track their progress and see their growth. So our philosophy is 360 degree and, uh, bigger, stronger, faster, um, the technical piece is, you know, how skilled of a lacrosse player are you? And then can we, can we get you to a point where you look a lot different when you're a sophomore and a junior and a senior uh, physically than you did when you were a freshman? Um, 
both with the stick in your hand and in the weight room and develop their IQ uh, through video um, and through, uh, you know, just building their skill on a daily basis. And so I think, you know, the philosophy, Jamie, is, you know, we want to be able to recruit kids that are athletic, um, hopefully skilled. Um, and if they're not super skilled, but athletic, that we can, you know, build their skill set when they get here in a lot of different ways. Uh, and I think it looks a little bit different for positionally, but for yeah, each position, for sure. Um, in terms of what you look for, for me, attackman, I think speed and skill are the two most important things um, over size. Um, you know, having coached guys like, you know, Jimmy Bitter and Joey Sankey at Carolina, I think that, you know, just kind of proved to me that it, it was about speed and skill. Um, IQ is a big one for sure. Uh, and then, you know, midfield wise, it's, it's, I think, you know, certainly toughness, speed, um, and the ability to play at both ends of the field, they're important. Um, you know, size would be more important to me in the midfield, but not certainly not mandatory. And then defensively, I think it's about your feet, um, and your dexterity there. And, um, I think I'm learning more and more having a good stick and being able to get the ball off the ground is something that is critical. Um, and so we try to take the development of a pro, uh, you know, really developing our guys in those areas positionally to, you know, get them at max capacity. Talk to me a little bit about your uh, philosophy on two man game and how that relates to your um, player development strategies. Yeah. I mean, I love the two man game. I think back to the player development question, I think, you know, from a fundamental standpoint, we want to build their fundamentals, you know, with passing and catching. And I think you want to be able to do that before you implement the two man game. Um, cause once you implement the two man game, it brings a whole nother layer of skills into play where then maybe some other things, uh, can get overlooked. Um, but I love picking, um, and I've always loved teaching picking, um, beating your man in space is wonderful, but I think finding creative ways to, in different areas on the field to set great picks. I mean, back when I was at North Carolina, uh, was when we first started setting razor picks. Uh, for, you know, the Holman, Bitter, Sankey, you know, kind of attack group and creating yep. different angles to um, use them to, to leverage the defense while using the cage, as a Coach Tamboroni told me, as a, as a seventh offensive player um, and really looking at it as, like, this is another offensive guy on the field. And if you can use it that way and if players think about it that way, you can set a pick and have the defenseman navigate the back of the goal. Um, it can really create issues for the defense. And so – um, the two-man game on the wing and at GLE are, are things that uh, excite me. And I think creating um, space for guys that maybe can't beat their guy with pure athleticism, uh, points of contact and where the defense is addressing the ball really dictates, I think, where you want to set the two-man game. Um, I think for us, you know, being able to evaluate, are they playing us, you know, are they getting out and playing us, you know, five, six, seven, eight yards outside the box, or is it a softer point of contact, which you see, and that's kind of all over the map in college across. And so a good picker is an underrated player in your offense and um, creating a positionless mentality within your group where guys can both be a great Dodger, but also can set great picks is something that is going to really help you use two man games within a motion offense. Joe Keegan, um, who uh, works for the PLL now and, uh, does PLL stats and does a lot of writing. Did did a, did some uh, very interesting um, uh, studies in PLL lacrosse and came up with some cool stats that sort of said, "Hey, you know, your shooting percent, your your percentages of shots when you stick to the middle increase when you play two man game, and of course, stick to the middle is going to give you a higher shooting percentage in virtually every quadrant of the field." He also mentioned that um, your um, shots off the catch percentage is higher in two-man game. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that that everyone, in, even in basketball and lacrosse, your shooting percentage is higher off the catch than off the dodge. And I'm just wondering if you've thought about these analytics as you, as you think about why you might want to use two-man game or not. You know, honestly, Jamie, not a ton. I mean, I've seen those stats. I think um, it sort of verifies my belief in the two-man game. Yeah. Um, and being able to bring people to the middle of the field, I think, you know, good pickers bring guys towards the goal yeah. um, and they're north south and they do a good job of staying between uh, the defender and the goal. And yeah. so if you're setting a good pick, you're you're somewhere between wherever the goal is and where the defender of the man you're picking for is. And I've always kind of believed in that. And that's that back to that point of contact and hunting the back of the guy's jersey that you're picking. Um, 
And so I've seen those stats, but I've always believed in picking, even when we had guys that could right. beat guys in space back at Carolina, like they didn't necessarily need a pick. We used them anyways, yeah. just because I felt like if anything else, it's bringing two guys to the ball. And so then when the ball moves twice, you know, you put the defense in motion and now all of a sudden you might have a three on three on the backside or, you know, you've kind of isolated, you know, a matchup on the backside that you wouldn't normally be able to do without the pick. So those analytics just kind of reaffirm that for me. And it, it also shows at the highest level where you have Jordan Wolfs of the world that can run by their guy using two man games is still a, a real effective, um, you know, situation to really, uh, you know, put a burden on the help side of the defense. Totally. I mean, basically it's addition by subtraction. So if you have to send a third man to a two man game, whether it's to the, to the roll or to the dodge, you've got three guarding four as opposed to four guarding five. I mean, that in and of itself is, is pretty huge and a great reason to set a pick for Jordan Wolf, who can probably run by his guy anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think the guys who, who traditionally would say, yeah, he can run by his guy without a pick. They're almost, they're the, they're the harder ones obviously to defend with a pick. Cause then right. there are just so many decisions to be made defensively on, you know, are we going to switch this and put a short stick on this guy? And are we going to get the guy through? And if we get the guy through, are we going to play the pick high-low? Are we going to play off the pick? And these are the decisions, discussions we're having on the defensive end all the time. And so it just – it puts immense pressure on on the defense to, you know, to, to make those decisions. And so I think it's even more valuable when you have a player that can run by his own guy and all of a sudden you're bringing another guy to the party and it's, it's really stressful. It is. Interesting. What, uh, what's your offensive philosophy? You know, in a, in a, in a best-case scenario, it's, it's, it's playing positionless lacrosse. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, six helmets that can play above and below goal line. Um, all guys that can, that can, you know, beat a short stick matchup. Um, and it's a fluid, um, you know, offense where the ball is being shared. There's great ball speed. Um, and, you know, guys are, are able to adapt uh, to different spots on the field, can dodge from the wing, can dodge from below, can dodge from above, and don't necessarily need to be in a certain specific spot on the field to be successful. Um, you know, if you have a lefty attackman, he's comfortable where, you know, he might end up at X or he might end up on the righty wing. And now his stick is to the outside and he can attack the back pipe and, you know, he can dodge through X or he can, you know, pass down, pick down. And uh, there's a, a menu of options that the guys can choose from and they can, you know, play hard and fast within, um, you know, within the confines of that system. Um, and so that's kind of my euphoria, I guess, if you will, is that yeah. positionless mentality. I love it. Positionless lacrosse. seems like a, there's a lot of programs and the best offenses are kind of doing that. I would say across D1, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would. I think it, it sounds, it sounds easy. It's harder than it sounds mm -hmm. um, in terms of being able to just teach the basic skills and fundamentals to your point, Jamie, it's almost less is more. Um, in terms of getting to that point of playing positionless lacrosse. But I think attacking early out of the box is important with the shot clock. Um, and then uh, developing, you know, their, their, their skill set from a uh, tactical and technical standpoint um, on the player development side and um, building that positionless mentality. You know, middies are guys that are going to mirror below goal line and attackmen are guys that are going to pop, you know, and, and whip above goal line. Um, and I think, you know, recruiting offensive players as opposed to recruiting attackmen or midfielders is something that I tell every recruit. It's just I want to get the six best guys on the field. So, um, and everybody's doing that. And yeah. um, I think that's, that's the goal is to get the best players out there. Now, how does that fit into your defensive system is the next yeah. question. And how do you right. get back on defense? And yeah. how does that stress you in other ways? That's why I say it sounds easy. Yeah. And then you play a team that's coming at you and running with three and sending their long stick midi right up the middle of the field and can handle the ball. And you've got two attackmen getting into the hole. It, you know what I mean? It, it's to play positionless. You got to play those highly skilled players on offense, but it, it can cost you at the other end of the field. Well, and you also, you know, if you're going to play positionless lacrosse and you better not take bad shots <laughs> because right. then, then it's coming down your throat. You're going to have to get some of those guys stuck on defense. Right. Right. No doubt about it. And obviously it's all tied together. All, all five phases are tied together there. So, um, you know, with the face off X, the riding, the clearing game, everything, there's an implication to everything that you do. Can you ride with, with that mentality? You know, right. it becomes a little bit tougher and, and then all of a sudden you want to ride and it's like, okay, well, you want to play two way middies, but they're not going to be quite as positionless. They're not going to be guys that you want below goal line. Right. So that's, 
those are all the things as a staff, as you're building a program that you just got to continue to have discussion on. There's no perfect science to it. And um, it can, it can, it can change from year to year for sure. Yeah. It's a little bit, it's definitely personnel based. I mean, if you, some, sometimes you got guys that can do it a little bit better than others, you know, if you get yourself a Canadian two way guy, you know, then maybe you can stay down there and be a lefty finisher for you and be a defensive mini. Right. You're going to sacrifice something no matter what you do. You're going to be, it's just no, back to the coach fed of just knowing who you are and going with it. Um, you're going to sacrifice something no matter what. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's all about developing your own philosophy and, and we're still developing that at Lafayette, to be honest, where, you know, some of it is, you know, bringing these recruits in and seeing kind of w what fits where, you yeah. know, and then going from there and, and building that philosophy as we go. So I want to talk a little bit about dodging for a second. And, and um, the reason why is because obviously dodging, one of the most important skills in the game, you know, you referenced it a second ago, everyone's got to be able to dodge a short, um, draw a slide, there's a million different dodges, you know, how you initiate your dodge, you know, what you do with your stop and goes and change direction and pop outs, and then how you finish the dodge at the end of the dodge. I remember asking Gary Gate um, 25 years ago, hey, what, what's up? You know, how do you teach dodging or what's your go-to dodge? And he was like, um, I pretty much just wait for somebody to overplay me and I beat them. <laughs> and that stuck with me for a long time. And the reason why is because all the dodges that we teach that are all used by the best players in the world, split dodges and V-cuts and hesitations, rollbacks, pop-outs, Z-dodges, question marks, everything. They're all great, but it really comes down to being able to get your guy to overplay you somehow. And I just wanted to ask you that question and just hear your response on how that, how you kind of think about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of comes back to just like what you teach your, your seven or eight-year-old. Change the speed, change the direction. You know, um, COS and COD. And it's like there's your traditional split dodge like you're talking about, uh, rollback, all that stuff. And then there's just, you know, guys who you're like, how did he beat that guy? Like if you watch right. Jeff T. dodge, he just – he beats his guy with leverage and, you know, he takes advantage. Or however you play me, I have an answer. Yeah. Because like you said, I'll, I'll just, you know, there, there's a, a way that I can beat you. You've got to give me something. And um, He basically lets his guy beat himself is basically what Gary was saying. That's what Jeff Teat does. Correct. And, and, you know, is that because he's played a lot of box? Is that because I think he's got an exceptional IQ and just has a feel for it. Just like when you play basketball and you look at how did that guy get that shot off right, right. there? You know, uh, five, seven point guard or whatever in the lane. Um, and so I think that, um it, it still comes back to those two core tenets of, of change of speed and change of direction and being able to, you know, some, for some guys that's fast and some guys that's slow. And there's a slow dodger out there that is good at, at just letting his guy beat himself. And then there's a guy, you know, like Kyle Harrison that, that is going to change speeds and change directions. There's not much you can do about it. Um, yeah. You know? And so I think there's, there's something for everybody there. I don't think it's a one size fits all at the end of the right. day. You know, you want to get to the middle of the field. Everybody's trying to get to the front of the goal um, and get to a spot that is going to, you know, put a lot of pressure on the defense um, and open up passing lanes and, and put you in a position between the pipes where that's where your stick head is. Um, and so I think one size, like I said, does not fit all. So I think knowing who you are as a Dodger is probably the most important thing and not trying to be somebody that you're not. Um, and if you're a guy who's very, very one-handed, who's maybe trying to beat somebody, you know, a certain way, uh, it might not be as successful for you. And you might, you might need to change your style a little bit. And I think some kids struggle making that transition from the high school game to the college game and what worked for you in high school doesn't work at college. And now you've got to be able to make that adjustment. Yeah. It's just interesting because I think we, it really comes more down to feel um, with their COS and COD. I mean, it's, it's not just about executing that. It's about a feel. Right. Like, you know, when you watch somebody over, you know, how do you make somebody overrun you? You know, that's the easiest way to beat someone on a COD is to, is to get them to overrun you somehow. Right. I mean, it's not just beating them with your quicker change of direction than theirs. It's, you know, you watch Billy Bitter. I mean, he was quick as hell, but he also had an amazing ability to, to stop and go and get people to overrun his go to set up his rollback. And I just feel like so much of it is just a feel and that's, you know, why I was sort of bringing it up because it's so, it is really interesting. 
Yeah, was it was it how good his COD was, which Billy might have had one of the best CODs ever, but to your point, was it or was it more or as much when he knew he knew when to yeah. use it? I think you it was know, as okay, much. I got this guy leaning this way and I know when when to actually do that. Or if you watch Rob Pinnell give a talk on how to dodge from X, it's like, wow, that sounds great. I'm gonna go teach my guys how to do that. He just has an innate feel. When he gets you on the island, it's like he just feels pressure, he feels leverage. Yeah. And whatever you're gonna give him something either top side or the question mark or the inside role or, you know, whatever the case might be. And he just has an incredible feel um, for how to do that. <laughs> and so I think, yeah. is that from box? Is that from free play? Um, I think that, you know, that's what, when people talk about guys being athletic, people think about speed and strength and there's an athletic IQ piece to that and an athletic feel that um, might be the hardest thing to teach. It is. In fact, I don't think you can teach it. Yeah. I, mean, I think you have to learn it. Did you ever notice that when you watch film of a matchup, any matchup, that the defender's footwork matches almost identically to the uh, Dodgers? No, I mean, I hadn't really thought about it, to be like, honest. Like, literally, if you watch, you put on a film, and you know, if you did it right now, you watch a one-on-one -on -one move, you would see their feet sync up. Right. Every left foot that's going down on the offensive player, the left foot of the defensive player is going down. It's wild. Bill Tierney actually mentioned that one time, 20-something years ago, and I was like, that is really, really interesting. They just they end up matching up. And so it kind of makes sense that the only way that you're going to be able to like get a great step on somebody is to make them take more steps. Yeah. No, it's a it's a it's a great point because you know that you're just gonna be slightly behind you. Yeah, the slow dodger you're talking about, those guys are typically great at like luring you away from the cage and can then wait for you to beat yourself. Or even on the Billy Bitter. Yeah. Billy Bitter made you take two extra steps. That was why he beat you so bad. If the guy was rolling back on the same on the same cue that Billy Bitter was, he'd be maybe a little behind him, but he'd be his feet wouldn't be that that different, you know. So right. it's just a, it's a super interesting. I remember hearing a story from Matt Hasselbeck. His daughters play lacrosse. They're friends with my daughters. And he was talking about Jerry Rice when he was, like, at the end of his career and some defensive back was like, man, you've got the fastest DB in the whole NFL guarding you. Like, how are you going to – you know, you don't have your speed anymore, Jerry. And he was like, he can only run as fast as I let him run. <laughs> uh, that's, yeah, that's why he's the best. I mean, the guys, the guys like, don't have a way of putting that into words, too, that we're in awe of. I know. All right. Defense. Give us a little uh, taste of your defensive uh, mentality, your philosophy. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, it starts with um, the, the thing that, you know, we all, we all want uh, guys that are, that are certainly tough down at that end of the field from a physical perspective. But I think having the, uh, the, the guys that, are more concerned with getting a stop than they are with um, obviously their individual matchup is something that is going to be uh, important. And you, you try to identify those guys, you know, certainly through the uh, recruiting process and, and kind of take a look at guys that, you know, really have uh, can, can play the ball, but at, at the same time, um, you know, take a lot of pride in their posture off the ball and, you know, uh, helping out their teammates and taking pride in communication back to like the Sandlot mentality of, you know, if, if we went out and played pickup basketball of just, you know, the joy and the fun that you get out of, you know, talking with your teammates and talking through, um, you know, slide packages and things of that nature. So I think for us, you know, the, the points of pride that, that we really look at defensively are, uh, you know, elite level communication, um, you know, being able to have guys that can put their hands on people and set the edge um, and, and guys that take a lot of pride in, in, in what we call the unseen, which is just all the little things, the nitty gritty, uh, whether it's um, diving in front of shots, diving for end lines, um, picking up really, really tough ground balls and just have a certain mindset. I just I do believe in that kind of cliche quote that defense is, you know, 90 percent attitude. Um, is something that we're looking for at the defensive end. It's just, a, it's a, it's an attitude. 
uh, and it's got to start between the pipes with your goalie and it's got to work, work its way out from there. So uh, more so than like size and speed and things of that nature, uh, toughness, attitude, um, and guys that are willing to play with seven helmets that uh, can play together um, is, is where it starts for us defensively. As far as sliding, not sliding, again, that's still a work in progress. I think that caters to your personnel. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I worked for Frank, as we talked about, so I see the value in just, hey, this is what we do, and we slide to everything. Personally, I, I'd like to be a, a group that, you know, you make people earn slides. Um, you have certain landmarks on the field that you slide to when, when, when you get beat. Um, and, you know, hopefully you, 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 don't, you don't always have to do that. Uh, and I think that if you can um, develop that mentality with your guys and build trust um, and understand, you know, what are the tells as you, you hear people talk about on when to slide uh, and develop that language and that system uh, within, within your defensive philosophy, uh, which takes time to build, then uh, ultimately you can get to a point where the guys are, um, are playing fast, you know, and are playing together and uh, you're given that you're empowering them to make those decisions. And it's not just, Hey, we're going to slide to everything. And this is what we do. Um, I think the shot clock era, people are attacking you for the life of the possession. So yeah. it becomes a little bit more uh, interesting in terms of how you handle that early offense, you know, component uh, versus maybe the second 40 seconds of the shot clock. And then, you know, maybe the end of the shot clock. Um, and I think that's all, that's all part of it as well. So ideally, Jamie, I'd love to have a group of guys that ha have a really, you know, tough mindset down there that are resilient. You're going to get, you're going to give up goals. You're going to get scored on. Um, nobody's holding people really to single digits uh, as much anymore uh, in the shot clock era against really good teams. And so developing that attitude down there is where it starts. And you referenced the importance of being able to get the ball off the ground and clear it, and especially in this uh, shot clock era with the 22nd clock, which used to be the, the norm and went away for a long time. Clearing got kind of easy there for a while. Yeah, I mean, getting the ball off the ground is key, and clearing it in the first five seconds of the shot clock is, is ideal. I mean, you pick up the ball, you get up and out, you get north-south, you get vertical, and, like, that's, that's your best clear. Yep. And I think moving away from the settled clear and more to just, you know, getting up and – um, and getting out where teams can't ride you uh, is is something that that we've certainly we're, we're working towards yep. um, and, and trying to improve on. So I think you know developing your guys' sticks and obviously recruiting kids that have good sticks is is certainly important because when that ball is on the ground, um, if you can't get a one stop, it's it's going to be awfully difficult. And then of course, if you're not winning faceoffs, that's part of it as well. No doubt. All right. So last topic I'd like to chat with you about um, is recruiting. So we were just talking about defense. Um, what are you looking for in a defensive recruit? I mean, I think at Lafayette, you know, we want guy, a guy who has um, some athleticism uh, that we, you know, if he's from a non-traditional area, we can, we can develop him, um, has a good stick, uh, as we just talked about, and for the reasons that we just talked about, and, and yeah. I think most importantly has, has the mindset and the toughness. Um, to just it's going to do whatever it takes to, to get a stop down there. Um, and so size is great, uh, but not essential. Um, I think, you know, having a mix of righties and lefties is nice, uh, but it's athleticism um, along with uh, a good stick and then the mindset to, to, to get stops. Um, and, you know, the IQ piece is, I think, relative to the system that you're running and I think developing guys within your system is, is you can kind of do your best to evaluate that within the recruiting process. Are they coachable? Are they willing to take feedback? And, you know, are they guys that want to be a part of a seven-man unit or aren't just, hey, I got my guy, uh, I'm good. So um, I would say defense to me is one of the harder positions to evaluate. Uh, I know it's probably the hardest one for me. Um, as an offensive coach, my eyes go to the offensive guys probably more than the defensive guys just naturally. Yep. Um, you know, but at the same time, I feel like when I do see a D guy that I fall in love with, um, I usually fall in love with him like pretty quickly. And it, it's not necessarily how they're guarding the ball, but just watching all the other little things that they're doing that make you really appreciate them as a, as a player where they're not getting credit for it. Yeah, um, being able to evaluate, it's pretty easy to see defensemen in, the, in their stick skills, right? That they can pick the ball up and run with it. You know, you can check that box and it's relatively easy to see that. Um, 
sometimes it's hard to see the one-on-one defense ability simply because they like might not even get dodged more than like once or twice in an entire game or maybe they're not going against somebody that's you know good enough to sort of give you a look um but you can kind of feel like well you know he seems like a pretty good athlete i feel like he can move um it's the off ball and the iq and the processing and decision making and stuff that i think when i think about recruiting defensemen i think is one of the hardest things and how do you do that I mean, I, I, back to your point of what you're looking for, I think basketball players are, yeah. you know, ideal to play at that in the field for the communication piece that we talked about. But um, it, it's really hard. I mean, it, it, you just read their, you know, when you're looking at their slide decisions that they're making, you know, at these events, it's like, okay, are they playing with their high school team? And are they playing within a system? Or are they playing on a club yeah. team? Where it's a little bit more of a free-for-all. And I think that's where, like, when you look at a guy playing on a club team that really is trying to do the right thing and is trying to make a good decision, um, you know, he's got that selfless mentality and that kind of humility to, um, you know, hey, I don't want to slide just so I can put the ball on the ground. And so I think that really just trying to evaluate, you know, is this kid going to be a, um, you know, as my brother likes to say, a humble warrior? Is this kid going to be one of seven? Um, and when you see them in that club environment, I think that kind of stands out to me the most. Yeah. Um, or is this a kid that just wants to be on the ball? Um, and so evaluating their IQ can be, can be the most difficult thing. And so you watch film, you watch them play live, you talk to their coaches and you do the best you can. You ask them some questions in the office, but, um, putting all those pieces together is difficult. It is. It is pretty hard. Um, obviously watching, you can sell, you can kind of tell the guys that have been really well coached. Yeah. From the guys that haven't based on their off ball posture and some of the things you're positioning, um, but that's not always, you know, that's something that you can drill and you can do, but, it, you know, and it's important. Did you cross a guy off a list if he, if he was standing up straight because he didn't know? Yeah. Oh, geez, that's a tough one. I don't know that, like, at lo- maybe. Uh, but I think, I think, yeah, it is. It is hard not to. It is hard not to because it, are you going to be able to change that kid? And yeah. So, I mean, I, I'd rather take a kid that's going to be in a, in, a, in, a, in a stance the right way, in a posture the right way, and maybe doesn't know when to slide. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, what about the kid that um, is like hunting double teams and, and, and seeing, uh, you know, someone's back turns and he's going? Yeah, I mean, those are in- instincts that are hard to teach, you know. And so I think if you're willing to let that kid do that in your system, then yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think there's definitely a place for that. Um, you know, I think you can always rein that in, but yeah. you can't speed it up. Uh, or you can, but it's just harder to do. It's harder. I just think you know, it's an instinct that, you know, um, if you're, you know, you want to let that kid do that within your system, then I think is uh, something that is exciting. Um, you know, it, it's really hard to get kids to, to, to understand that mentality and, and teach that. It really is. Even when you work on it, they just, people just in games, they might do it in practice, but in the game, they just are hesitant, you know, to, to sneak up on somebody. What about, what about the, uh, what about a guy who's a takeaway guy that's, you know, like, Maybe he gets beat more than he would if he had if he threw no checks, but he's got an ability to put pressure on, and he is you know um, putting the ball on the ground. And if you look at that, similar to that, rather rein that guy in a little bit than have the guy who doesn't ever try because he literally just plays cross check defense all the time. Yeah, I think it, I think you're more than I'd be more than excited to to work with a with a kid like that. And I think the the bottom line is they have to be able to buy into your system and at least have a baseline of fundamentals before you can just give them the the free reign to go out and do that. And I think if they're willing to, um, you know, have respect and and buy into what what maybe the other guys are doing um, as a baseline starting point, and then slowly let that you know person you know, have more and more freedom. Um, you know, it's hard to bring a kid in and just cut them loose right out of the gate. Um, if that's not your philosophy to just right, say, right. I'm going to go out and pressure everybody, you know? Um, but I think, you know, if you're going to bring a kid in like that, then you have to kind of let them be themselves. And, um, but I, I think there are kids that, that are very good at that. And I think it's just a lot of times they don't have great fundamentals. And so, can you blend some solid fundamentals in there exactly. um, and then let them be themselves, I think is the goal. Yeah. Um, okay. So you're recruiting, um, you, you're not really recruiting um, middies in attack because you're trying to play more positionless lacrosse generally. Is that true? 
Yeah, I think you look for two-way guys. I think you look for guys you can stick a two-way midfielder on, on you know, each midfield line, a guy that you're confident that you know can ride, can get in the hole. So I think you look at it as, you know, you two-way midfielders, and then from there it's sort of positionless and guys that can um, handle the ball uh, offensively um, and that can, you know, because you may end up moving a midfielder to an attack spot and you may end up moving attackmen to midfielders. And I was a high school attackman that, didn't play a lick of attack in college. So, um, <laughs> you know, and I think just being able to move guys around and have kids, I think more or less just be ready to be flexible when they get there and, yeah. and then fit the pieces of the puzzle. It all sounds great on a recruiting board. And then they get there and, you know, you don't know how kids react to the college environment and how their skill set develops and getting the best guys on the field. So how are you evaluating the IQ of players offensively? Well, I think when you see a kid who's not incredibly athletic, but is still finding a way to get it done, I think that speaks volumes about their IQ um, and how they make others around them better, even though they're not the guy. And so I think when you are evaluating maybe the third attackman on a, on a good club team where maybe the other two guys are going to ACC and Big Ten schools, but maybe this guy is flying a little bit under the radar because he's just doing maybe – not one thing incredibly well, but he's doing everything just good. Um, you start to get a feel for, man, this kid gets it. And he's got kind of a servant mentality here. And he's, he's really helping these other guys shine. Um, and you start to have an appreciation for his IQ. But to appreciate somebody's IQ, I think you need to watch him play several times. Totally. It's hard to just watch a kid play once and be like, man, that kid's got great IQ. I mean, you can maybe get a hunch, but you can also be fooled there a little bit too. And I've been guilty of that. Um, but once you watch them play several times and you keep seeing the same things over and over again, and it's not just blowing by their guy. Um, I think that's where you start to gain an appreciation for, wow, this, this kid gets how to play an emotion offense and kids that are brought up. So I was listening to Ben Rubio's talk, you know, just in terms of like how he was brought up through a one, three, two motion and then going to Virginia and then working with Dave Cottle and, yep. You know, like the kid, uh, one of the kids I coached at Penn, Adam Goldner, is just one yep. of the smart. If you just watch Penn play, you, and it just goes unnoticed, but he'll clear through every time when he's supposed to clear through. And he'll give the Dodger space when he's supposed to give the Dodger space. And everybody looks at how quick his release is, and it is, but his off-ball IQ is absolutely off the charts. Um, and so I think you just gain an appreciation for that over time. Yeah, very cool. Um well, I really, really appreciate you coming on. Um, great talking lacrosse with you, as usual. Um, fired up to uh, watch the future of the Leopards. Really bummed that it's uh, March uh, 17th and we're not in lacrosse season anymore. Um, but uh, best of luck to you, and uh, let's keep in touch. Yeah, Jamie, really appreciate you having me on, man. It was a blast. Thanks so much. All right, buddy. Take care.